if you would, let's turn again to the book of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just say a special word of greeting to any guests that we have with us this morning. Uh, we're very thankful that you're here, and we certainly hope and pray you'll be blessed uh, by your time together with us. You're welcome here anytime. Uh, we love having visitors with us. Uh, also, let me mention that if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of those in the seats in front of you. Uh, you'll find our passage this morning in Romans 12, which is on page 947 of those uh, Pew Bibles. Let me begin by asking you a question. Are you a strong Christian or a weak Christian? Are you a mature Christian, a baby Christian, or somewhere in between? When it comes to this particular local church and your place in this body, are you one of the more mature saints among us? Are you someone that others should come often to for counsel and advice? Is your life an example to others in this room? Or are you still young in the faith? As trials come your way, do you find that your faith is very unstable? You begin to doubt God quite easily. Are you still young, learning for the first time some of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith? Are you just beginning to conform your practical life to the teachings of the Bible? This is a spectrum and all of us who are believers in Jesus are somewhere on this spectrum. We're somewhere between being a brand new baby Christian and being a fully mature, doctrinally sound, love-filled, faith-filled, hope-driven, Christ-centered, obedient follower of Jesus. So where are you on that spectrum? In the church at Corinth... That particular church was struggling with pride, as we've already seen even last week. That's a persistent struggle for every local church and every Christian. But the Corinthians were struggling with pride. They thought that they were the most important members of that church if they could speak in tongues. So their measuring stick for spiritual maturity... Their measuring stick for spiritual importedness was giftedness. They thought that the more gifted they were, especially with gifts like tongues, the holier they were. And yet Paul taught them just the opposite. He pointed the Christians in Corinth to love. Uh, he said that if you don't have love, you are nothing. Uh, love is a mark of spiritual maturity. Love is a mark of spiritual growth. We should be looking to those in this body who are the most full of love as our examples of what spiritual maturity looks like. Well, here in the church at Rome, Paul is addressing a very similar issue. He's speaking to a local church. He's speaking to the issue of pride. And he's about to say something about spiritual gifts. So there's a lot of parallels between our passage we're going to see this morning and what he says to the church in Corinth. 
But whereas he tells the Corinthians, use love to measure your spiritual maturity, here he goes a little different direction. He says, a good measuring stick for your spiritual maturity is faith. Is your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ firm? Is your faith in the promises of God strong? So as we come again to verse 3, let me sum up what we've already seen in the past few weeks. And I'm going to sum them up in four statements. I'm just going to read them, and then we're going to move on. So if you've missed, you may want to go back and listen online. Just four statements to summarize what we've seen, and we're going again to verse 3. So number one, in light of God's mercies, in light of what he's done for us through Jesus, we are to worship God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Number two, we do this by being different from the world, being transformed as our minds are changed by the word of God. Number three, the change in our minds that we're after is a change that gives us a humbler view of ourselves. Rather than a view of ourselves that has us looking down on everybody, The word of God should so transform our minds that we see ourselves as small compared to God and even small compared to others that we begin to count others as more significant than ourselves. And then number four, to help us see ourselves rightly, especially in relation to other Christians, we are to use the measuring stick of faith. So let's see it again. We're going to read Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. Okay, See if you can follow Paul's line of thinking as we read Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there's a famous scene in the movie Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams has the students in his uh, poetry class experience a change in perspective. And he has them all stand on top of a desk and to, to read the poem, not from where they're normally sitting, but to read from standing on top of the desk. And it's, it's a change in perspective as they read that, read that poem. 
Well, your perspective of this world is shaped by how you think of yourself. Remember, we saw last week that Paul assumes that every person is walking around with some assessment of themselves. This is just how God created you. You have some thoughts about yourself in you. And how you see yourself shapes the way you see everything else. If you have high thoughts of self, you see everything else as small. God is small. His wonders are small. Other people are small. Their offenses against you are big. Your offenses against them are small. Meanwhile... If you've been changed by the word of God and you've begun to be humbled by the word of God and you see yourself as small, then your perspective of everything else is grand. God is bigger. His works are bigger. His wonders are bigger. Other people are more important. Your offenses against them are more important. Their offenses against you are less important. So you see, how we think about ourselves is right at the root of being able to live the practical Christian life that Paul's going to open up in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, and beginning in chapter 15. This is why he starts here. It's why he starts saying, think about yourself rightly. Use sober judgment. Use the right measuring stick. And what is that measuring stick? Faith. So as we look at the end of verse 3 this morning... I want to ask three questions, and here they are. Number one, why is faith the measure we should use in assessing ourselves? Number two, how do we assess our faith? And number three, what's the result of obeying this command? What is the result of obeying this command? So question number one, why is the measure... That Paul gives us in thinking about ourselves the measure of faith. And I see three reasons. So here they are. Number one, this is what makes the Christian mind new. This is what makes the Christian mind new. So Paul just told us in verse two that the key to living a transformed life for Jesus is for your thinking to be made new. Right living comes from right thinking. So if you want to live a right life for Christ, it begins with thinking right thoughts. If we're going to live for him, our perspective must be made new. Our outlook must be made new. When you see the world differently than others see it, when you have different values, when you have different priorities, it's going to make you not conform to this world but transformed, and you're going to live the kind of Christian life God is calling us to. But what makes the Christian mind new? What makes the way you think today different than the way you used to think before you were a Christian? And the answer that Paul gives us is faith. The Christian mind trusts Jesus kneels before the teaching of Jesus, hangs on the words of Jesus. The Christian mind loves Jesus. The Christian mind is less self-trusting and more Christ-trusting. The Christian mind has begun to see that this whole world is about Him, that we are sinners and only in Him are we made whole. The Christian mind is the mind of faith. It sees that Jesus is the glory of this world. 
He's the creator of this world, the sustainer of this world, the Lord over all this world. And though sin has tainted our perspective, though sin has poisoned our minds, the more we humble ourselves, the more we listen to Jesus, the more we trust what he says, the more our minds are renewed, healed, made to think rightly again. What is the renewed mind? It is the mind of faith. The more your mind loves Jesus, trusts Jesus, centers on Jesus, the more it is new and the more it sticks out like a sore thumb in this world. And so let me just stop and ask you, dear Christian, speaking to Christians in the room, are you learning to take every thought captive to Christ? Are you beginning to see everything in relation to Christ as your Savior? When you look at the world around you, do you just see nature or do you see the handiwork of Jesus? When you think about your callings, do you just see them as what you do each day? Or do you see them as callings given to you by Jesus to sanctify you and to be spheres of influence for his his name? When you look at your relationships, do you think about how Christ has brought these people into your life both to do you eternal good and for you to serve him in the way you relate to them? In other words, where is Christ in your thinking? Does Christ permeate your thinking about everything else? Does he saturate your thinking about everything else? Is he shaping and coloring the way you think about everything else? Can you truly say, I see the world Christocentrically, Christ-centeredly. I see Christ in connection with everything. Second, I believe that the reason the measuring stick Paul gives us is the measuring stick of faith because what is done in faith reaps eternal rewards. In other words, if you're going to measure yourself, measure yourself based on what matters. And what matters is faith because only what's done in faith actually counts. Did you know it really doesn't matter how gifted you are? If you are the most eloquent speaker in this church, but your speaking isn't done from a posture of humble faith in Jesus, it is vain. If you put more money in the offering plate on Sunday than any other person in this room, but your giving is not done from a posture of faith, it is in vain. If you spend your Saturdays mowing the lawns of our elderly church members, meeting their practical needs, serving them, but it's not coming from a heart of faith, it's vain. Being a good speaker, giving generously to the church, caring for the elderly, these are all ways that we might try and mark out who are the most spiritually mature people in our church. These are all ways that people might try and say, see, I'm important. I'm strong. We might even dare to say, where would this church be without me? Paul gives us the true perspective. Assess yourself by the measure of faith because only those acts done in faith are truly wonderful. And they are wonderful when done in faith. (laughs) 
Do these things. Care for your elderly neighbors and our elderly church members. Pursue obedience to Jesus. Pursue more spiritual giftedness. But do so through faith, from a heart loving Jesus, trusting Jesus, wanting to be used more greatly by Jesus for his name. His power working through you for his glory, not your glory. Romans 14, 23 is coming. It's coming. Do you see Romans 14, 23? It's just a page over. Paul speaking there about a person who's unsure. This person's unsure about whether eating particular food is right or wrong. If that person thinks that eating that food might be wrong, but he eats it anyway, he is sinning. And then look at how Paul says this in Romans 14, 23. He says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is not done in faith brings the judgment of God. Even if it's feeding the hungry. Even if it's serving the poor. You see, God created us first and foremost to be worshipers and lovers of Jesus Christ. And if you do anything outside of that purpose, you're doing it as an act of cosmic treason. An act of rebellion against your very God-given design. An act is only truly good when it's done in faith. An act is only truly good when it is done because of your love for Jesus out of the joy, the peace with God that you have through Jesus. And so over in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul teaches that on the day of judgment, all of our works will be tested as though through fire. Do you know that? Everything you've ever done will be put through a test on the last day. A test as though through fire. And he says that some of our works will be burnt up like straw, like hay, like wood. It won't hold up. It'll be burnt away. It'll be seen as vain. And that is anything that we've ever done not in faith. But all that we've done in true faith springing out of our relationship with Jesus, it will be found to be like gold, like silver, like precious stones. And those acts will store up treasures in heaven. Those acts will have eternal, lasting benefits. Frankly, Mount Hermon, I tremble at the thought of years of ministry going up in flames on the last day. I want to serve you in a way that springs from faith in Jesus. And I want to love you in a way that reaps eternal benefits. And so I would ask you to pray for my faith. And pray for Pastor Merle's faith. And pray for the faith of your deacons. And let's all be praying for one another's faith. That everything we would do to serve Jesus and to love one another would be done trusting in him. And for the glory of his name alone. And then the third reason why I think Paul tells us to use the measuring stick of faith. When thinking about ourselves. Is that you simply cannot boast. In the measure of faith. Uh, Remember we're asking why did God make 
faith the measuring stick for whether we are strong or weak. And here we see God's wisdom on display yet again, because by making faith the measuring stick, the strong in faith, they cannot boast. They can only give all the glory to God. The moment I start bragging about how much faith I have, I'm showing how little faith I have. (laughs) Pride and faith, they don't go together. They can't exist together. The very nature of faith includes a deep sense of how utterly dependent on Christ I am. If I think that I'm something in and of myself, I am doing the very opposite of faith. Pride is rooted in self-sufficiency. Faith is rooted in Christ as our sufficiency. And so now I want to mention four truths to drive this home. To make this hit us so that we'll really get it. And I hope you'll see these truths in this passage. Number one, there really are degrees of faith. There really are degrees of faith. So do you see that in our, that in our verse? I'll be honest, you cannot make sense of Romans 12 verse 3 if you have the idea that all faith is equal and it's impossible to have more faith or it's impossible to have less faith. No, the Bible shows over and over again that you really can grow in your faith. You really can have more faith tomorrow than you have right now. You can have little faith and you can have much faith. So remember the man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He knew he had faith and he knew he didn't have nearly as much as he longed for. We remember Jesus saying to his hearers, O you of little faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So faith is something that can grow. And by the way, I love that verse because it brings together both Paul in Romans and Paul in 1 Corinthians. Because the rest of that verse says, And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, here's why we're thanking God for you. We're seeing you grow up. And he says, here's how we know you're growing up. Your faith is increasing and your love is increasing. Well, that's Paul's measuring stick in Romans and Paul's measuring stick in Corinthians. What does a mature believer have? Faith and love that is abounding. Are you maturing? Are you growing as a believer? Second, see in our verse that God assigns our degree of faith. Do you see that? That shocks people sometimes. God assigns our degree of faith. He says, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Which means, friend, whatever degree of faith you have this morning, you have it because God has given it to you. And he has assigned that degree of faith to you for this day. I wonder what you think about that. Are you strong in faith? It's all owing to God. Are you weak in faith? What little you have was given to you by God. God is the author of all true 
saving faith. Ephesians 2.8 teaches us that our saving faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But I remember being in college, and I remember being stunned by this truth. That it doesn't matter how much I study. It doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how much I look for opportunities to serve Jesus. I will not grow one bit if God doesn't choose for it to happen. Uh, Just as I was completely helpless and needed God to give me faith in order for me to first be saved, so I am just as helpless right now and need God to continue giving me faith. And what faith I have, it's all owing to him. The text that stunned me back then, there was a preacher that came to Campbell University where we were, and he spoke from Hebrews 6, verse 3. And just listen to what Hebrews 6, I'm going to start in verse 1, and, but I want you to hear how it ends. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So that's what we want, right? We want to grow up as Christians. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. In other words, the Hebrew writer says, we've gone over all of these basic truths, truths that you know, truths that you understand. It's time to, go, to grow up. There's more to say. There's more to learn. He says, let's mature. And then he says, verse 3, this we will do if God permits. And I remember thinking, you mean God might not permit? God might not permit somebody to grow up. But now it makes perfect sense. After all, everything we do is dependent on God. Uh, How much benefit you get from this sermon this morning ultimately depends on Him. Now it helps if you're listening. (laughs) It helps if if you're paying attention. It helps if you came ready to learn with a humble heart and you're eager to hear. God will often bless that to make the sermon beneficial to you. But not always. God has the sovereign right to take a person who has prayed, who has humbled himself, and who is paying attention and make that sermon of no spiritual benefit. And God has the sovereign right to take another person in the room who's hardly listening, who's trying to stay awake, and by God's sovereign grace, he chooses to make something said in that sermon affect that person for the rest of their lives. It just means he's God. (laughs) He gets to do as he pleases. Now, that's not how it normally works. The pattern is that God typically blesses those who are humble and obedient, and he typically withholds his blessings from those who are prideful and disobedient. But ultimately, he is sovereign, and the degree of faith that we have is in his hands. This is why that man from the Gospels is such a good example to us. His prayer should be our prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you give me a little more faith? Luke 17, 5, the cry of the disciples to Jesus. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Do you ever pray pray that? Oh, Father, increase my faith. Help me trust you now in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this circumstance. I didn't expect this, Lord. Increase my faith. That was an amazing thing for them to say to this guy from Nazareth. (laughs) It shows that he really was the son of God. 
Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And every one of us must say that. Number three, uh, third point driving this home. God's sovereignty over our faith should make us zealous, not complacent. God's sovereignty over our faith should make us zealous, not complacent. So, so you might say, well, now wait a minute. If God's sovereign over how much faith I have, well, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to be in God's house or honor God in my callings. If God wants me strong, he'll make me strong. The problem with that view is that it fails to recognize that God typically works through our choices and our efforts. He's not bound to do so. He's not obligated to do so. But he typically does so. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not as only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're to work out your salvation. That is, you're to actually follow Jesus. You're to open up your Bible. You're to be a disciple. You're to listen to him. You're to pray to him. And as you are doing so, it is God working in you to grow you up and to mature you. God uses means to grow us up in faith. He uses the Bible and prayer and Christian fellowship and the trials and the tragedies of your life. Why should God's sovereignty make you more zealous in pursuing greater faith? Because it means whatever obstacles against you are not too strong. Think about it this way. What if it were up to you and me by ourselves to grow up in faith? Think about all the obstacles against you as you try and grow up in faith in your own power. The world is so alluring. The devil is so deceptive. And this flesh of ours is so powerful. If maturing as a Christian was up to us in our own strength, it would be a hopeless enterprise and we could never do it. This is good news. That God has set his love on us. He has made it his purpose to grow us up. And there are no obstacles that are too big for him. And he will give us more and more faith as we trust Him and walk in His ways. So when we open our our Bibles, we shouldn't go to our Bibles counting on our own abilities to make us grow. We should open our Bibles in faith, saying, Father, by Your Holy Spirit, would You grow me up? When we go to the Lord in prayer, we shouldn't say, Lord, I'm praying, I'm going to grow myself up. No, we should go to the Lord saying, Lord, would You make my prayer life strong that I would be strong? We use the means of grace in faith. We come to church saying, God, these are silly things that we're doing in the eyes of the world. A bunch of people getting together to sing some, some old songs and to, to, to read this old book and to say hey to one another. And, and what's, what's the point of it all? No, we come in faith because God said, if you get together and do these things, I will bless. And I will grow you up. And so we come here in, in faith. Remember Romans 10, 17 Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. 
It's not faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Don't, don't hear it wrong. That's not what it says. It says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. In other words, Christ has the ability to so speak a word that is so powerful and effective that ears stopped up with sin become unplugged. Christ has the ability to speak a word that is so powerful that hard hearts are softened and eyes are opened and life is given. When you first believed, it was because you heard the message of the gospel in a preacher or a book or a Bible or a song. But as you are hearing the message of the gospel, Jesus himself was speaking and he spoke and your ears were open and the supernatural word of God called you to faith and you believed on Christ. Like Lazarus, you got up from the dead and followed Jesus. And all I'm saying, dear church, is just as that's how it all began for you, that's how it continues to work today. That through the means of the Bible and prayer and Christian fellowship, Christ is still speaking. And by his spirit, he opened your eyes and he opened your ears. And you keep growing in faith. So you have good reason to pray that God would work to strengthen your faith. Especially since the God you're praying to loves you and is eager to bless you. God's not over here with all of this faith saying, I'm going to withhold faith from you. I want you to be weak. I want you to be young. I want you to be be unstable in faith. And I'm going to hoard this faith over here. No, God says, ask, seek, knock, and I'll give. I just want to show you that it's me that gives. I want you to ask. But if you will ask, I am eager to grow you up. If you're here this morning and you're an immature Christian, a baby Christian, and you've been a baby Christian for a long time, it's not because God was unwilling to give. Finally, the last way I want to drive this home, fourth point. It is God's wisdom that local churches are made up of people with varying degrees of faith. It is God's wisdom that local churches are made up with people of varying degrees of faith. Have you ever thought about that? If God is sovereign over our degrees of faith, why doesn't he just make every one of us perfectly mature right now? Or why doesn't he just make all of us in this church have the exact same degree of faith? Why does he have us in this room all over on the spectrum? It seems... That God is more glorified by his local churches being bodies where people are all over that spectrum when it comes to their faith. There are aspects of God's character. Uh, There are gospel fruits that are better seen and savored by his people When local churches are families in which some are spiritual infants, some are spiritual toddlers, some are spiritual adolescents, some are spiritual young adults, and they're growing. So think about the relationships that we get to have in this church family. There are folks in this church who are more mature than us. Folks we get to look up to. Folks who set an example for us. And God has given them to us to be our mentors and our counselors. 
We get to cherish them as spiritual fathers and mothers. And there are aspects of God that are sweeter to us because of the gift of those in our church who are more mature than us. And there are others who are less mature in the faith than us in the church. And so we get the opportunity to help them grow. We get the opportunity to be part of their discipleship, both the victories and the valleys. We get to see them grow and know by the grace of God, he's actually gotten to use us. Not that he's gotten to use us, that we got to be used, right? We got the privilege of being a part of what God is doing in the life of somebody else. The glories of life in a local church are amazing. And and they would not be possible if all of us had the same degree of faith. Ultimately, on the last day, when we're all in heaven and we've all been made perfect, we will look back and we will love God all the more because of what he showed us about himself and the relationships we had with people who are more mature than us in the faith and people who are less mature than us in the faith. And so here's how I want to close. Two points of application. Number one, are you experiencing the glory of God in local church relationships? Are you experiencing the glory of God in local church relationships? Dear friend, are you connected in friendship and fellowship with people in this room who are at very different places in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have mature believers speaking into your life? And are they dear to you? Do you go to them and spend time with them so that you can learn from them and be influenced by them? Are you actively seeking help from others in this body who are older and more mature in the faith. Also, do you have a heart for the young disciples in our church? And when I talk old and young, I'm not talking about ages. (laughs) I'm talking about spiritual maturity and immaturity. A a new believer can be 70 years old, and he may go to a a 20-year-old who's been walking with the Lord for 10 years. Do you have a heart for those who are younger in the faith than you? Those who who maybe are just beginning the walk of discipleship. Are you actively seeking to help them and to speak into their lives? And do you see that if you disconnect yourself from relationships in this church, you're robbing yourself of glory? You are robbing yourself of something wonderful that God has designed for your good. And you're not only robbing yourself, but you're robbing others in this body. You're hindering the growth of the body as a whole. Dear Christian, fellowship must be intentional. If you just come to Sunday morning worship and you hardly see anybody else in this room the rest of the week, you're missing out on something vital to your spiritual growth. You must make the pursuit of holiness a priority. And within that intentional pursuit of holiness, there must be an intentional action to make fellowship with God's people a priority. God will do you good through those conversations around dinner tables and at bojangles and phone calls and as you fellowship with the people of God. And then second application, and we're done. Could it be that there's a person in this room 
who cannot assess themselves by the measure of faith because they don't have faith at all. When you take the measuring stick of faith in Jesus and you put it beside yourself, you realize, I'm zero. Because I've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, there is nothing Nothing more important for you to hear this morning than this. You must come to faith. Heaven and hell are in the balance. You must trust the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved before it is too late. You must surrender yourself to Him. Trust Him and Him alone to make you right with God. And be willing to follow Him at all costs. Your sins are a weight that will carry you down to hell. But Jesus alone can lift them off of you. Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive your sins, give you the Holy Spirit, reconcile you to God. Yes, you need Christian fellowship, but there's something you need way more than Christian fellowship. You need Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one message for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Amen? May the Lord make it so. Let's pray.